three, two, one. Today on Kentucky Caliber, we're going to be talking about inflation, why are we seeing so much of it, what's causing it, and what can we do about it. Those are questions that impact almost every aspect of our daily lives, whether it's going to work or going to the grocery store, or for folks that are running businesses for conducting operations or making buying decisions or planning decisions, or whether you want to go on a vacation. The cost of living and the cost of goods and services are something that we all have to contend with in our daily life. And so first, we're going to start by looking at what's causing inflation in 2022. This is a continuation of a trend that started two years ago, thanks to the onset of the coronavirus. And that's a theme that I'll be uh, echoing throughout this uh, conversation today, that most of the problems that we're seeing uh, in terms of inflation and price increases are due to the emergence of the novel coronavirus and the and responses to it. And we should keep in mind as we look at those responses that, that both governments and, and communities and private employers really had no choice but to respond to the coronavirus and ignoring it was simply not an option, especially when there wasn't a vaccine. And so while some of the decisions have had uh, economic ramifications and we'll get to those, we really had no choice. Today, when we look at the, uh, the factors driving inflation, I think there's primarily three that we should focus on. The first one is supply chain. The second one is energy and energy costs. And the third one here in the United States is government action in terms of uh, putting more money into the economy by way of stimulus packages. Now, of those three factors, only one is under the direct control of a government, and that's, of course, the stimulus spending. The first two, supply chain and energy prices, are not under the direct control of the government. But we'll start by looking at supply chain. If you think of goods and services in the global economy, which it is, we're all in, we're all part of a global economy that's connected. Think of it as goods and services circulating throughout the global economy in in a similar fashion to the way that blood circulates throughout the body. When it when the heart pumps blood, it brings nutrients and other vitals uh, to the limbs and to the organs, and so the flow is essential. If you stop that flow, or if you disrupt that flow, immediately it causes problems. If you disrupt that flow for long enough, of course, in, in, a, in a person, it can cause death, and you can, or you could lose limbs if, if they don't get adequate uh, blood, fly, blood supply to, those, to a leg or to an arm or even to a, a hand or a finger. So in a similar way, that's how supply chain works. Goods are produced in one location, they're sold in another. So for example, products that are manufactured in, in Shenzhen in China may be shipped across the Pacific Ocean to the port in Long Beach or Los Angeles, and they're distributed from there to stores, uh, especially retail stores, and they wind up in your local Walmart or Target or whatever your uh, retailer may be. Or, or conversely, they're goods that are made in, here in the United States and they're shipped abroad for export and then they're sold in Europe. So that all depends on the movement of goods. Goods are moved you know, through rail or by truck or by plane or by boat, but they're almost constantly in motion. And so what the pandemic did was it affected, it impacted, and it degraded the ability of goods and services to circulate freely throughout the global economy in the same way that an actual illness can cause a lack of circulation or circulatory problems in the human body. That's what the novel coronavirus did 
for the, the global economy. Many years ago, I think this was out of 2010 or 2011, I worked at uh, Target corporate headquarters at their global crisis uh, management division. And one of the role as a senior analyst there, one of my one of my job responsibilities was to help forecast and mitigate disruptions to the supply chain because Target, like many retailers and like many other businesses or, or manufacturers uh, in the United States, source a lot of product from overseas. And specifically, uh, I'll use it as an example, China, since it accounts for somewhere around 40% of the total imports uh, to the United States, depending on which source you cite, it could be a little more or a little less, but it's still a pretty significant uh, amount comes just from that uh, one country. And so when we did that, we looked at things that could cause supply chain to be disrupted. A natural disaster, for example, could damage a factory or it could close a road or, or shut down a shipping port. And so those could all those would all cause uh, goods that would have to be diverted to somewhere else. So it would take them longer to get to their destination and that's, that's the disruption that we would measure in supply chain. But we had a very specific way of thinking about potential contingencies and potential obstacles to supply chain. And what I mean by that is most of them were viewed as temporary or, or minor disruptions. In other words, when we planned uh, for supply chain disruptions, we didn't plan on them being very long or very severe because the supply chain itself really moved pretty well. Um, it moved about like a well-oiled machine, and so there was a constant conveyor belt of goods and services circulating around the global economy, and it always manages managed to find its way through uh, disruptions, whether natural disasters is just one example, uh, political unrest or protests, they call those disturbances in China, by the way, um, that's what our Chinese friends call them, um, or disturbances around a factory that may prohibit uh, production for a little while. But the, but the goods always got delivered and the end result was when people looked on their shelves in their store, their supermarket or the retail store, everything they wanted was there. There, there weren't any, any delays or disruptions. So when, when things work like that, the supply chain is invisible to the consumer. And we live in a consumer-driven economy because consumer spending is the engine which moves, which causes all of that. It's sort of the beating heart, if you will, of that uh, circulatory system. But we didn't expect uh, anything to just shut down entire cities or countries for prolonged periods of time. Had you said that to folks who do business continuity, which plan for disruptions and try to mitigate it, they would have simply said, and even as short as you know four or five years ago, folks would have said, no, that that's not a realistic scenario. Nothing. We don't. We don't plan for the entire factory to just be shut down for a prolonged period of time. We don't plan for an entire port to just be closed for a month. That's not realistic. It's not a realistic scenario. So don't spend time and resources planning for that. Well, and as years went by, as long as things worked worked and flowed smoothly, the economy was allowed to get away with that. But the coronavirus uh, significantly changed that by imposing choices on, on countries and governments that they had to make for health reasons. And so you wound up with ports or factories or cities that were closed or were shut down or were disrupted for very long periods of time because people were forced to stay home and so they weren't allowed to work the same. And, I'm, and I'm, again, I'm, I'll focus on China here because that's where a lot of our goods come from. That's just one example. Of course, we had a similar problem here in the United States when we had to have people stay home from work. And so productivity is slowed. And so that changes the amount of goods that are circulating through the economy. So now there are fewer goods available and that by itself can cause uh, problems. In addition to the, the, the labor problems, there are also structural problems. For example, when countries due to the, the coronavirus pandemic closed their ports, 
they re- they had received a lot of goods, but when they shut them down, shipping containers started sitting there going empty, and they weren't they weren't sent back to China where they could be reused to send a new shipment of goods back, say, to the United States. So you have a situation in China where you have primarily four ports, and in Shanghai and Shenzhen are two of the biggest that send most of their goods across the Pacific to the United States, which, by the way, is received by primarily two ports, uh, Los Angeles there and Long Beach. And in addition to those sort of bottlenecks, you also had, for a while, a lack of shipping containers. So you had labor problems with producing goods. You had a lack of shipping containers, which means we couldn't ship the goods that we did have. And then if you got them there, say to Los Angeles or Long Beach, due to the coronavirus itself, you would have a worker shortage because folks were either having to stay home due to restrictions or just like across the economy, the the shipping ports are no different. Folks who had worked there for a long time decided they didn't want to work there anymore. And so there was a, a change in labor habits that affected the ability of us to receive goods coming in from across the, the Pacific Ocean and move those through to the supply chain like we normally would. So the production at the source, the ability to send it across the ocean, and then the ability to process it and receive it here on our end, all created inefficiencies, obstacles, and bottlenecks. And what that means to you and me as consumers is that when we looked on our shelves, when we go to a a retail store or even a grocery store, sometimes things that we were used to seeing there in quantity all of a sudden either weren't there anymore or there were fewer of them. And that's a problem because of scarcity. Economics will tell you that if you decrease the amount of products that are available and you don't decrease the demand, then the price is going to go up. And so that happened across a number of different sectors in the retail sector, in the grocery sector, whether you're talking about cars or chips for computers, all across the economy, the impact of the coronavirus on supply chain disrupted that global circulation in such a way that fewer goods and services were now available to the people who wanted them. So think of it as when when your foot goes to sleep, um, that's a nerve problem. But if you, if you cut off circulation, it's not receiving the nutrients it needs, the oxygen it needs. It's going to cause significant problems. And the same thing has happened in our economy with respect to supply chain. And that's still an issue that we're trying to sort out. Production has largely resumed in places like China, although with the new round of lockdowns they're imposing, it's still having an impact. Not It's not stopping production, but it has slowed it down a little bit. Many of the shipping issues with containers have been solved, but receiving goods at the ports is still an issue due to manpower and capacity. So to make up for the bottleneck, we have a whole bunch of ships that are just lined up out there waiting to come in, and we don't have a large enough place or enough people to manage those goods. And so that's one factor that's driving overall inflation across the country and across the economy is that there are fewer goods available for purchase which drives their prices up. That's the first factor. The second factor that's affecting the situation with respect to inflation and pricing is energy costs. Energy is a part of the economy that affects almost every other sector because you have to have, as I mentioned earlier, when you're shipping goods or you're you're flying them or you're driving them or sending them by rail, you have to have fuel to power that transportation. And so your transportation costs are are directly related to energy. And energy prices have already been going up, again, directly due to the impact of the coronavirus. So if we go back to 2020, 
And we recall that when, here in the United States at least, when the first round of restrictions really began to take effect and states started issuing, we call them lockdown orders, I guess they were, but they, they weren't nearly as strict as some other places like in China where people were actually not allowed to leave their homes at all. But we did have uh, restrictions in place that limited movement and it also convinced uh, consumers to go out less and they went, they went to restaurants less, they ate out less, sometimes they couldn't go to work, they had to work from home if you were able to. So transportation dropped, uh, the amount of use that people were using their vehicles and trucks stopped, so fuel consumption went very much down. And that had an impact on the energy sector because the energy sector itself is based on production, uh, which is really in three parts. You extract the fuel from the ground, like the crude oil, you process it in the refinery, so you have to refine it, and then you have to send it, distribute it to wherever it's going in its final destination, whether it's at your local gas station or at a plant or whatever the case may be. And so when that huge drop in demand happened, it had an immediate effect on the energy sector that's still rippling through today because we had all of a sudden a surplus of fuel and gas on the market. And, and as we saw in 2020, the value plummeted. Yeah, I think for a short time, it even, it was even negative. So it dropped a lot. And, and for, of course, consumers, the price of gas went way down. Ordinarily, that's a great thing. If you're on a lockdown due to a pandemic, it's not so great because you can't use it. What happened was, since then, production, especially here in the U.S., has largely recovered. In, in 2022, the United States is producing 11.6 million barrels per day of oil, whereas in 2020, right before or just as the pandemic started, it was 11.3. So it's, it's pretty close, but it's, it's slightly more in 2020 than it was in, uh, rather it's slightly more now in 2022 than it was in 2020. Refineries were also hit because they operate on thin margins. And so if the, when demand plummeted, some of those refineries were scaled back or shuttered or closed or put up for sale. And turning those things on and off is not a light switch that you can just do instantly. They have to be reconstituted. The production has to be ramped back up for them to get back to their original operating um, and the original production schedule. And finally, the delivery, which is the, the transportation, which depends in large part on, on the trucking sector, because you know if you've seen your local gas station, uh, your, your semi-truck will roll in there with a tank full of fuel and fill up the fuel tank at the gas station. They have a shortage of drivers. That's been exacerbated in recent years. It's not surprising at all to see the trucking sector involved in protests because I think the, the vaccine mandate for them was just the last straw. They've been overworked and underpaid for a very long time and all of those frustrations that they had had just were exacerbated by the pandemic itself and then finally by the, the employer mandated uh, vaccines that a lot of truckers just decided was the last straw and that, that drove them to protest uh, in places like Washington and uh, other cities across the United States. So that also means that you have a difficulty in refining fuel and getting it to its final destination. So those are again disruptions in the supply chain, specifically in the energy sector, which means that there's fewer product available and more people want it. So as supply did not keep up, but demand skyrocketed now that we're coming out of the pandemic and everybody wants to start taking vacations again, or going on drives again, or just using the vehicles that they have for transportation like they normally would. In that situation, then, you've got a case where there's a, a skyrocketing demand, but not 
a corresponding increase in production, which again will drive prices up significantly. On top of that, the Russian invasion of Ukraine triggered, it added to an already increasing energy sector price, it added another 20% spike on top of that because Russia is one of the leading energy producers in the world, it's one of the top three, and the, both the United States and European Union have put significant sanctions in place on the purchase of fuel from Russia. So that also helped add to the situation from the pandemic, which had led to energy price increases. And so what that means was when you go to the gas pump, you have to pay more money per gallon for fuel than you were before the pandemic started, especially after the, the lockdown ended and people started going back out again. And that applies industry-wide and economy-wide because goods have to be shipped. And so while you and me pay more money to fill up our gas to fill up our gas tank to go to work or go to the store, companies have to fill up either motors that, that power trucks or trains or planes or, or ships using fuel that costs more when they have to pass that cost along to consumers because it's an increased cost of doing business for them. So the energy factor is a significant contributor to the overall increase in prices that we're seeing in 2022. The consumer price index for March, or for, rather for February of 2022 was over 7%. It's very high. It's one of the highest rates we've seen since I think the early, either the late 70s or 1980s. I think it may have peaked in 1982, but so it's, it's been quite some time. Um, that's a good 40 years since we've seen numbers quite that high. And the, the new data for March won't be available until April 12th, which is next week. So we'll get a look at those at the, from the Department of Labor. We'll get a look at the new data for March of 2022, but I expect it will be more than 7.5%. It will probably top 8%. We'll see exactly what the number is. But primarily due to those first two factors, which are supply chain disruptions and uh, increases, increased costs in the energy sector, both due to pandemic-related uh, dynamics. The third factor, which is directly under control here in the United States, which is directly under the control of the government, is the stimulus packages. And by the way, I keep saying under control of the United States government because we live in a global economy. So our government doesn't control the global economy. It certainly can influence it, but doesn't control it. So it can't control the supply chain and it can't control energy prices. They can influence them, as other governments can, but they can't control them. So when you add the supply chain disruption, the increased cost of energy, onto that we now added stimulus packages, which were passed under both the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And what those did was they increased the amount of cash in circulating in the economy, especially the United States economy. So people had more money to spend thanks to their stimulus checks. And again, basic economics tells us when you do that, if you have more cash chasing fewer goods, then the price is going to increase. And that was not an unknown, by the way. That was There were many economic forecasters who predicted that when the pandemic started to come to an end and consumer confidence returned and spending habits started, started to return to pre-pandemic norms, we started going back out again and spending more money that there was a good chance that there would be significant inflation and that would tell us that we were nearing the end of the pandemic or at least the consumers thought that we were nearing the end of the pandemic. So I guess you could think of it this way because when the 
when the lockdown first started in 2020, when we first passed the, the first round of stimulus, remember how many people were being put out of work. It was millions. Unemployment was massive and widespread and getting worse in the United States. We would have seen, without the, the government stimulus, we would have seen not only people falling below the poverty line and being unable to meet their basic needs, but also being evicted from homes or apartments or their, their, their properties that they rented. So if you think of it this way, there's a sinking car, and we're, we we got to rescue the people that are in there or get as many as we can. We had to break the windows in order to get them out. So we did. We did that. We got them out, and we saved as many as we could. But now that the waters have subsided and we pulled the car out, the windows are broken, so we have to replace them. And so there was, there was damage done just to, to conduct the rescue. Well, that's sort of the way things have, have flowed with the stimulus packages from the federal government. And those took the form of checks to individual citizens, but they also included a, a very lenient and, and a very matchingly tolerant policy from the Fed, which is the Federal Reserve, which made borrowing very easy and very on very lenient terms. And that ended up saving a lot of businesses from uh, insolvency. But it also allowed private equity firms to gobble up to get really really low interest rate loans with really low payments that they would or otherwise have avoided it allowed them to get those loans which they have then used to purchase large amounts of real estate in bundles so they bundled up huge mortgages into packages which contain lots of real estate and they're using that as as rental properties for revenue we saw a similar phenomenon to that back in 2008 on uh, the housing bubble when companies did essentially the same thing, which before the bubble popped, they used extremely low interest rates to buy large amounts of property, which they could then rent or resell quickly for a profit, and not worrying about the, the long-term implications on the housing market itself. They just wanted to make a quick buck, which they did. But they set us up for a, a housing bubble, which eventually popped. And so we're seeing a similar phenomenon today, which the government has very much facilitated by allowing the very lenient terms uh, lending terms that the Fed has, which were part of the, the stimulus packages that were passed, again, under both the Trump and the Biden administrations. Now, that has had the, the, the impact of driving up rents, as those owners, the new owners of that real estate, have charged more for their properties and more for their rentals because they can, uh, because they can get away with it, and they can make a lot of money, uh, at least in the short term. So they're not, they're not too concerned about what it's like for people who live in those properties. They just want more money. And so they've been able to do that. And so those three factors, supply chain, energy, and the stimulus packages from both the Trump and Biden administrations have led to sort of a, a confluence of factors, which has led to fewer goods, difficulty in moving those goods, and more and more money chasing, chasing after those goods all at the same time. So that is why we are seeing the increase in inflation and the increase in prices here in 2022. Of course, 2022 is an election year. It's very common practice for the political parties to blame each other for inflation and for the price increases. Uh, but the, the real culprit is the coronavirus. So if we, when you're looking for someone to blame, that's where the blame needs to fall. Then, of course, the question always becomes, okay, we have inflation, which is significant. It's causing problems. It's making it difficult for people to afford their, their basic needs or to run their businesses. So what can we do about it? And the answer is, in the short term, not a lot. 
there are some steps that uh, the government can take. For example, there is a school of economic thought, and this was borne out in the 1982 example, that if the Fed increases interest rates for borrowing, that will put a downward pressure on the economy and start to lower inflation and prices. And that has worked in the past. The only caveat is when you do that, if you raise those rates too much or too fast, you risk triggering a recession that will happen after the interest rates and or after the inflation and prices come back down. And we did see that happen in the immediate aftermath in the, in the case of the 1982 example. Although for folks who lived through it, like myself, if you remember, the rest of the 80s were what, what followed that was a very rich, vibrant period of gro economic growth. So the economy did recover, but you have to watch out for the, the dangers uh, of a recession if you increase those interest rates. But the Fed can do that, and that's one thing that can help uh, to can get a handle on uh, inflation. Another thing that can be done is to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That will put more oil in circulation, which will allow for prices at the pump to come down a little, at least in the short term. And that's something that's already being either considered or soon to be done by the Biden administration, which will help, uh, again, in the short term, will help folks uh, face deal with those uh, rising prices at the pump. Beyond that, the, the real solutions are more long-term. The, the underlying supply chain problems have to be solved, whether they're structural or they're manpower. Uh, the, the ports and the, uh, the factories have to get enough people working in there to get resume their, their production and their shipment and delivery of goods back to their pre-pandemic levels. So the circulatory system sort of has to has to heal itself uh, in order for, the, in the long term, for inflation to start coming back down. Uh, when's that going to happen? You know, no one really knows for sure. Economists have all kinds of forecasts uh, and models and, and simulations. Most of them tell you, or tell us rather, that it's likely that we'll see some relief uh, probably as, maybe not till as late as this fall, which is like September. Their charts unfortunately show inflation to continue to increase throughout the summer because the, the fixes that can be put in place will take time to, to, be, to, feel, to take effect. In some ways, it's like a, a large ship that you're trying to steer. Um, you, could, you could turn that steering wheel, but because it's so big and it has so much momentum, it takes room and it takes time for that ship to be able to make that turn. So, you know, folks who drive those really big ships will tell you that you have to think ahead and anticipate how long it's going to take for the, uh, the turn to actually be put into place. Well, the economy is the same way. It's an even bigger ship. So when we make steering inputs in the form of, you know, we're going to increase the interest rates or we're going to release oil from the petroleum reserve, okay, those are inputs that will be felt. But because the economy is so big, it's just going to take time for those effects to be felt. And they may not be felt until as late as this summer uh, or even early this fall. And that's according to economists who do a lot of forecasts on these. And again, there, there's so many different models. They're all over the place because, as I said, no one really knows what, that, what the outcome is going to be. But I think it's likely that we'll see towards the end of the summer or early this fall, we'll start to see the corrective measures um, take effect. And that also will allow for you know, time for workers who are seeking new, new fields of endeavor or new fields of employment. If you're switching from one job to another, which has happened across the economy, that will allow time for folks to get settled into new positions. And so you can expect to see um, 
positions get filled, filled and so employment will start re returning to its pre-pandemic levels and then the, the circulatory system can start to function like it did before the, uh, the coronavirus hit and, and instigated all of these disruptions that we're still feeling uh, even in 2022. So that's, we have to have, as a consumer and as citizens, um, we, we need strategic patience, which is always a very difficult thing to ask for because folks quite correctly have need help now uh, and a lot, I know a lot of people are in that, that situation and, and help is on the way, but it's just going to take time. It won't be instantaneous. You can't, uh, you can't dial back inflation or price increases in a matter of days or weeks. Unfortunately, it, it takes months, but we can expect to see those changes implemented and to take effect as the summer goes on and towards the end of the fall. So that I think kind of just to, to recap, we have a, a economy that's been severely impacted by the global pandemic. It's caused supply chain disruptions, it's driven energy prices up, and it, it gave governments no choice but to, especially here in the U.S., to pass stimulus packages and put more money in the economy, all of which helped us get through, the, the stimulus checks helped us get through the difficulties of the initial pandemic, as did the workarounds um, that the, econ the economic sector had to try to get through the supply chain bottlenecks but getting those back to the pre-pandemic levels um, is going to take at least until this fall, if not until uh, the beginning of next year. And of course, for folks that are that are keen and interested on the elections here in the United States, um, that's always going to be a, a hot topic, and, and rightly so, in an election. But whenever you hear someone say that it was it was all Joe Biden's fault or it was all Donald Trump's fault, those are just political accusations that really don't have much basis uh, in fact. And I hope I've been able to, to demonstrate that by explaining how the three main factors that drove our current inflation and price increases uh, came to be. So it's, it's very frustrating for all of us, for everyone who's a consumer or who runs a business, and I'm both. Uh, I, I'm sympathetic to, to folks who say that we need relief now and inflation has just gotten out of control and we need to do something about it. And, and that is definitely the case. Uh, all I ask is that folks remember the reason is, is not Democrats or Republicans or China, it's the coronavirus. Uh, and, and that's something that, that no one could stop. You know, we, we look at the, the Chinese response, and I'm sure I've, I've even actually heard folks in China's government say, yes, we, we should have done better, we could have done better, we wish we could go back and, and do that. But think about this, our government here in the United States, both at the federal and state level, struggled to figure out the correct response and how to handle the, uh, the coming coronavirus. And we knew it was coming because we had that information from overseas. China didn't get that advance warning. It, the, the, the virus arose in, China, in Chinese territory. So they didn't get a warning from overseas in even a few weeks of time to put together a response plan. They had to make it up as they went. So I think that even though they didn't do as well as they could have, they also faced a more difficult situation than we did. And so hopefully companies out there have looked at this and learned that some of our pre-pandemic assumptions about what's possible and what isn't or what's realistic and what isn't about supply chain disruptions, uh, we need to rethink those. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in business continuity uh, divisions and planners all across the country that, that there's been a lot of lessons learned from this pandemic and the response to it that will be put into practice uh, for whatever the future has to hold. So thanks everyone for listening. I really appreciate your attention and I hope you have a great day. Mm -hmm.